Okay, just um, a couple introductory remarks before we get to the second beast that we find in chapter 13. Um, basic ideas concerning interpretation of scripture. Let me mention again, uh, it's always wise to allow clearer scriptures to interpret less clear scriptures. It's always wise to not be too dogmatic about which is presented to us in a rather unclear way. I say that because in this text for this afternoon, uh, the number 666 is going to pop up. So uh, we need to be not too dogmatic about things that are clouded in some mystery, even though we can take the best shot at uh, interpreting the meaning as possible. Um, also, again, remember as you look at the book of Revelation, and this is typical of all scripture also, uh, make sure you always, I mean, sometimes even though the details of the text might be a little obscure, sometimes even if the details are obscure, the, the primary meaning's not obscure. Uh, the the, the um, overriding meaning's not obscure. I mean, like last week with the beast from the sea, um, it's clear that secular power uh, arraying itself against the people of God, persecuting, tormenting the people of God, uh, that's pretty clear. And we've experienced that, of course, in many, many different ways over the last 2,000 years. And I'm sure we'll continue to experience it till the Lord returns. And um, I'm sure that as secular power continues to come at the people of God, secular power will become more adept and skilled at doing that. Um, same is going to be true with today's beast. It's really, really clear in today's beast, uh, the beast from the land, that you're dealing with um, religious power that's being used against the people of God. That's clear. Uh, now, over the history of the Christian community, uh, we're not as smart as Martin Luther was, who said one time, he didn't all the way observe, all the time observe this, but Martin Luther one time said, where the scripture speaks, I speak, where the scripture is silent, I will be silent. Uh, neither he nor me have ever done that well. But uh, we need to at least remind ourselves, that, at least not be dogmatic when something in scripture is either silent or clouded in mystery. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned Martin Luther, uh, one of the many, 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 many guesses for what 666 means is uh, during the um, Protestant Reformation, there were many Roman Catholics who said you could use the number 666 to spell out Martin Luther. Um, there's been a lot of guesses like that throughout the history of the church. So uh, uh, I think it's even going to be clear what 666 means. It may even be clear that it is connected to a person, but be a little bit agnostic about, um, or a little bit humble, about who that person is, uh, because it's not spelled out completely. I, of course, I'll give you a really good educated guess in a few minutes about what 666 means, but um, it's not as clear to us as I think it probably was uh, to the people who first read the book of Revelation. Okay, so we're at chapter 13, verse 11. You saw the beast from the sea. 
uh, last week, the second person of the unholy trinity. And you see the beast from the land today in chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. And uh, this is the third person of the unholy trinity. Keep in mind something else is very clear in this part of Revelation is uh, evil is counterfeiting God and good. And that's why, just like you have a holy trinity, you have a, the counterfeit unholy trinity being presented here. You were presented the dragon first, Satan, and now two henchmen of Satan, uh, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Uh, and you will continue to see in this text, just like we saw last week, how evil counterfeits uh, good and God and Christ in uh, doing his work of evil in the world. So... And like, yes, and last week I did a, kind of a whole brief history of the concept of Antichrist. Uh, so you can, if you weren't here, you can access the podcast for that uh, because that's background to all of chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Again, the word Antichrist does not occur in this text. Uh, the only person that uses the word Antichrist in the New Testament is John in his first and second epistle. And it's clear when he used the word antichrist, he says there is one in his day and there are many antichrists. Uh, when, so when John used the word antichrist, he used it in the plural, uh, probably coming from the same background as uh, who Paul refers to in Second Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness or who Daniel refers to in Daniel 7 as the little horn of the fourth beast or the fourth kingdom so we have a rich history it's probably not the right word Um, we have an abundant history of the concept of antichrist the concept of someone uh, who comes against the people of god in terrible terrible ways and that may culminate one day with someone who is a better antichrist than we've had to experience in the past Uh, because evil just has this way of getting um, more and more adept and skilled at, at the longer evil gets to gets to prevail in the world. So with that, you can go back to last week's podcast and get the introduction to that concept because uh, I did that before we looked at the first beast. Here's the second beast. Verse 11, then I, and this is John here, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Remember last week with the beast out of the sea, we looked ahead to um, uh, chapter 17, I believe it is, where the sea is actually interpreted for us as all the peoples and languages and nations and tribes of the earth, so the chaos of humanity. Uh, here, um, the beast rising out of the earth, remember I've said several times that in the book of Revelation it appears that it's almost a code word to use the word the earth dwellers, uh, the people who are more at home on this earth than they are in the kingdom of God. You know, Paul says, this is probably a good thing to remind you on the day after the State of the Union address, Paul says our citizenship is where? Heaven. Um, We're just sojourners passing through this world. That's why we don't want to be among the earth dwellers who are more at home here than we're at home in God's realm. Um, So when you see here that this beast is rising out of the earth, you know what that means in Revelation, you know, coming out of the earth dwellers, uh, the people who are more at home on the earth than they are in the realm of God. So I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now look at this. It had two horns like a lamb. 
Now, the last beast was much more monstrous than this, right? The beast out of the sea. This beast uh, just has two horns like a lamb. This beast looks innocent. This beast looks much more inviting. And, of course, when you hear the word lamb in the book of Revelation, other than right here, who's it always a reference to? Jesus. So, again, you see evil counterfeiting uh, good and God and Christ. So this beast is not as overtly monstrous um, as, as, as the last beast, but this beast is much more... Um, Inviting it has two horns like a lamb. Horns are still symbolic in the book of Revelation and the book of Psalms, by the way, and other places, book of Daniel, uh, for, for power. So this beast has some power. Um, and the text makes sure you understand, even though it looks more innocent, it spoke like what? A dragon. And we know who the dragon is. That's clear in chapter 12. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf. So what you're seeing here, and this is a, this is clear, um, and this is probably the most significant part of this. Um, this is a clear depiction of religion being used at the service of evil secular power. Um, you know, you can almost make the case, is there any other kind of secular power? But at least be very, very careful when secular power uses religious power. And this is obviously religious power. It's going to become more obvious. It's obviously religious power uh, working on behalf of the first beast, which was secular political power. Um, but it's, it's exercising the authority of the dragon, the serpent. Uh, anyway, and it makes, keep reading, and makes the earth and its habitants worship the first beast. Again, religious power uh, being used by the secular power. Uh, so what this beast is doing is as it serves the first beast, the way it serves the first beast, that political power, is by getting people to worship the first beast. Now, um, for John... And you can keep extrapolating these principles throughout Christian history. But for John, uh, this would have obviously felt an awful lot like emperor worship in the first century. Emperor worship was prevalent in the ancient world, most prevalent in Asia Minor, which is where the book of Revelation centered. Remember the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, chapters 2 and 3? Um, uh, emperor worship was 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 much more prevalent in, in that part of the world, present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and the Roman era than it is today. Uh, just a little prior to this, in the major city of Ephesus, which is where John was before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, the emperor Domitian had just um, raised a 25-foot statue of himself uh, because by the end of the first century, it's very typical that the way you honored the, the, the Roman emperor, the political ruler, the way you uh, were patriotic to the state in the first century was you, you deified the Roman ruler. And, you know, that was not a big deal for the Romans because they deified everybody. They had hundreds of gods. So there was, no, was no issue for them to make another one. And so that by the time, uh, well by the time of Domitian, who's the emperor under, um, probably the emperor when John is writing this, uh, emperor worship was prevalent. It started with Julius Caesar. They deified Julius Caesar after he died. 
they deified his genius, uh, his spirit after he died. Uh, but then after a while, some of the Roman emperors said, that's a good idea, but I'd like to enjoy this a little bit. So go ahead and deify me while I'm alive. And again, in the Roman world, that was not a big issue. It was a big issue for Christians and for Jews. Jews didn't bear the brunt of persecution because the Jewish faith in the first century was still considered a religio licta, a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire because they knew that Judaism predated them. And so Judaism had a special standing status in the first century, and they got away with not worshiping the Roman emperor. And for a while, as long as it looked really, really clear that we were part of the Jewish faith, uh, we got away with not worshiping the Roman emperor too. Uh, That's why in Paul's letters, Paul says wonderful things about supporting the Roman emperor. But by the time you get to the book of Revelation, which is only 30 years later, not so much because things have changed. By the end of the first century, we don't look like we belong to the Jewish faith. We're becoming more Gentile. And that's when the Roman world said, we are a new thing. We are superstitious. We're superstition. So we were getting persecuted because we would not uh, worship uh, the emperor. You know, the church, the people of Jesus need to be very, 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 very careful. Anytime uh, we give, whether they want it or not, uh, whether we, whenever we give just a complete loyalty to any human being, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but um, now I always feel the need to say this, and my son may be listening to these podcasts with my daughter-in-law. They make their living in the political world in New York City, so they hear me say this. Um, anytime a politician uh, uses the church, I think they're using the church. You know, I'm sure that there's some out there that, you know, wants to reel the church in for their political, secular reasons. But I get nervous as a Christian because throughout 2,000 years of history, it never ends well for us. You know, Caleb, if you're listening, I'll say it again. Politicians can be self-serving. I don't know if you know that. You know, I mean, they they can be a little self-serving. Um they can be, they can, sometimes their egos can be a little big. Um, so we've known that for 2,000 years, whether it's Domitian. That's why we've had a lot of people for 2,000 years that we've said, this is the beast, this is what 666 means. And I'm sure we'll continue to have many more people who will say, this is the beast, this is what 666 means. So even if the details here are a little uh, sketchy, uh, the meaning's not. You've got secular power in the first beast, and now you've got religious power being used um, by the first beast. You've got this second beast who's a religious leader who's causing people to worship the beast. Um, And again, in the Roman world, no big deal. But it got us Christians in trouble because we did not and we should not, and hopefully we will not, ever render uh, that kind of allegiance or loyalty or blind support. Uh, to a secular rulers. Here's this beast um, causing the inhabitants of the earth to worship the first beast. And again, this goes back to the earlier part of chapter 13, whose mortal wound was healed. We saw that last week. Uh, The first beast at one point appears to be dead and he comes back. Well, of course, that counterfeits Jesus. 
Um, but also in the first century, uh, they really thought Domitian, Emperor Domitian in the 90s, was a reincarnated picture of the evil Nero from the 60s. So uh, that's how they were living with a ruler in the, in the 90s who appeared to somehow come back from the dead. We talked about that last week. Look at verse 13. It, this beast from the land, this religious leader, this religious leader who's using religious authority for the sake of secular power, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Who's he counterfeiting at that point? Elijah, remember the story of Elijah calling down the fire atop Mount Carmel when he's um, uh, contending with the prophets of Baal. So this beast, this religious beast out of the earth, uh, he performs great signs. We'll talk some more about this, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, there's that nod to the sovereignty of God that you keep seeing throughout the book of Revelation. This beast is allowed to work signs, allowed to work work signs. That's ultimately everything's under the soft control of God. But God does allow evil to have its reign sometimes. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of or on behalf of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. And again, earth dwellers and this is a big deal in the book of Revelation. Earth dwellers, those who are sealed by the enemy, are very different from, from those of us who have been sealed by the Spirit, and our citizenship is elsewhere. So when the, when the text tells you uh, that um, it deceives those who dwell on earth, those of us who belong to Christ are left out of that mix. Because again, earth dwellers, we know who they are in the book of Revelation. So this beast is doing wonderful things, doing signs and wonders, miracles, and is causing everybody to just take notice. And it's, it's causing everybody to worship the beast because this religious leader is telling them to do that, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And again, John has seen that happen throughout Asia Minor. John, John has seen a 25-foot statue. By the way, we still have the head, the huge head from that statue in the museum. But uh, the, he has seen the 25-foot statue of Domitian go up in the major city. And that was all over the Roman Empire. But that image of Domitian go up for people to be able to worship and pay homage to Domitian. So he's seen that happen. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. So uh, somehow there's miracles, signs, wonders. The statue is speaking. Um, two things about that. Uh, one kind of specific to John's world, then I'll broaden it out to our world. Um, that's where ventriloquism came from in history. I guess you know that, right? Not yes, and tell me you know that. That's where ventriloquism came from. In the ancient world, it was typical. Again, you had all kinds of gods all over the ancient world. Uh, there's a great book written on the first century by an author named, a secular author named Hopkins, and the title of the book is A, Rome, a, a World Full of Gods. So there were gods all over the place. And, and the priest of all these gods, they can make these gods do some remarkable things. 
um, and that's where ventriloquism came into being. Um, but we have lots of evidence from the first century, Tacitus, Suetonius, a lot of other authors, where even they got much more elaborate than ventriloquism. They could use pulleys and they could use machinery to make these statues talk and to win over gullible people. Um, not that you could ever imagine politicians winning over gullible people. But anyway, it has happened in history. Um, so we know that happened in the ancient world. They, they could make signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, if, you know, we now know if you went to um, uh, the, the big um, Delph Delphic Oracle in Greece, where the Olympics were founded and all that stuff, and you went and you went to the uh, went to the, the site there in Delphi in Greece, and you went to the Oracle, and the, everybody thought that Oracle had um, great mystical powers to tell the future and all that sort of stuff. You would go and you'd ask that um, um, that that great Oracle at Delphi to um, give you an answer, and that Oracle at Delphi would give you some answer that was so general it could have probably applied to half the population, but the Oracle of Delphi would give you an answer like uh, some modern prophets. They'd give you an answer that was so general that people accepted it. We now know that the temple in Delphi set over a fissure in the ground, and there was not just gas coming out, and that person was high that was giving out all that advice. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that miraculous things were happening in these temples. Now, one of the things you need to understand, there's two ways for signs and wonders and false miracles to happen. There's trickery, and we know that from the ancient world and the modern world, sometimes trickery. But we also have read Paul, haven't we? Paul lived in that world. If you read 1 Corinthians, Paul also says there is a second cause for false signs, false wonders, false miracles. And you may remember Paul echoing in your mind the demonic. The demonic can counterfeit the things of God. So, with that being said, go back to go back first to Mark 13. Just show you a couple of texts that that can push this out beyond uh, the the period of John in the first century to other periods in human history. If you look at Mark chapter 13, look at verses 21 through. 23. Here's, this is the Olivet Discourse. If you were with me with Mark a couple years ago, we studied the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus is talking about the end of the age in two ways. He's talking about the end of the Jewish age, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but then he also begins to talk about the end of the age of, of, of human history at the return of Christ. So both kind of get conflated here. But notice what he says in verse 20, let's start with 21, 13, 21 of Mark. Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to his disciples, and he's talking about the end. And he says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there is the Christ, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise, and they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. So there's always been signs and wonders, false signs, false wonders, false miracles. Sometimes it's trickery, sometimes it's demonic uh, that the enemy can use. Let me show you one more text. And we actually read this last week when we were sort of doing our intro to the concept of Antichrist in Jewish and Christian history. So now go back to 2 Thessalonians. 
again, we looked at this last week, but I didn't point this out there. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you can't find it, ask who the Baptist are at your table. They'll point it out to you. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This again is where we did, this is why we looked at last week. This again where Paul is talking about what has to happen before the end. This is where he talks about the man of lawlessness, which is probably the same person that John calls Antichrist. Um, look at chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians and begin reading at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. That's exactly what you're seeing in Revelation. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing uh, because they refuse to love the truth, the truth, not everybody's truth as they want to perceive it, but they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there is a concept that we know that there's uh, false signs, false wonders, false miracles by trickery or by the demonic. And, if, and I think if you're looking at Jesus and Paul, uh, they probably are saying that um, those false signs, false wonders, false miracles might even uh, increase at the end of the age. Uh, but those who are in Christ should not be deluded or fooled by them. Uh, we are smarter than that. Uh, we don't get fooled by that. So, but you notice here, back to Revelation 13 now, you notice it says that whoever's not worshiping this miraculous image of the beast, uh, this maybe a statue of Domitian, this, they use pulleys to make them talk to you, um, or ventriloquism, something to talk to you. If, not, if you refuse to worship uh, the beast from the sea, the secular ruler, then they will be slain. Again, book Revelation is written to people who are giving their life, becoming martyrs for the faith. And again, I will say, remember that more people died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century in Christian history. And should the Lord, Lord tarry, I'm sure the 21st century will probably even put the 20th century to shame as far as the number of Christians who have to die for their faith. Just because it's not happening in, happening in high point doesn't mean it's not happening all over the world. Uh, that's why there's other parts of the world that get, get the book of Revelation better than we do. Because they, they are filling the beast from the land and filling the beast from the sea in remarkable ways. And they're paying for it with their lives. Look at verse 16. And we'll wrap this up because we've got to get to 666. Also, it causes all. this Again, the beast from the land who's trying to make people worship the beast from the, the sea, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. It sure does. Let the one who has misunderstanding calculate the number of the beast, for is the number of a man, and and his number is 666. Um, I wish this was the most fascinating few verses in the book of Revelation for people, but it ends up being a lot of times, and a lot has been written over these verses. Some of it's good, some of it's cautious in what it's saying, some of it is absolutely ridiculous, this out there. Um, so be a little humble and, you know, don't be too dogmatic 
I don't let anybody else be too dogmatic about what they're telling you this looks like. But um, let me offer you an ed educated guess at what the text may be getting at. Um, two things behind this right hand and forehead, this mark that's going on the right hand and forehead. Again, particularly if you're interpreting something that's a little bizarre like this without a lot of Bible background and context, you're liable to do some weird things. Uh, as soon as you see anything being on the right hand or the forehead, as a good Jew, your mind goes to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, like verses 6 through 8, right? That's one of the most key texts to all the Jewish faith. Uh, do you know what a tefillim or phylacteries are in the Jewish faith? Yes, Mary's, Mary's doing sign language to me. In Orthodox Judaism, you wrap when you, for your prayer time, you wrap something around your head, you wrap something around your 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 right hand and forearm, right forearm. You, you with me? If I had AV capability, or if I had enough sense to do AV capability, I'd show you a picture. But you can Google it. Uh, you know, Orthodox Jews still do it. They wrap around the head with a little box on the front, and they wrap their arms up. That's uh, still done in Orthodox Judaism because it's commanded there in Book Six. You should put the Word of God on your forearm, put the Word of God on your on your forehead. Um, what's in the little box, by the way, if you've ever wondered and didn't seek it out, what's in that little box uh, that Jews, Jewish males put on their forehead for their prayer time is um, um, both uh, the Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Lord our God is one. That, that's in the box. And then part of Deuteronomy 11, that's from Deuteronomy 6, and part of Deuteronomy 11 is in the box. Uh, that's just a, a reminder to the Jewish community, a very visible reminder that the Word of God needs to be foremost in your, on your forehead to remind the Jewish community. It's not all about wearing the little boxes. And by the way, Jesus talks about the tefillim and the phylacteries. Um, it's not all about wearing the little boxes. Uh, what the box on the forehead is to remind you of is this needs to be in your brain. The Word of God needs to be in your brain. And the reason it's wrapped around your right hand, uh, the ancient assumption was we're all right-handed. Um, so it's wrapped around your right hand to symbolize the Word of God should be integral to what you're doing. So the Word of God should be integral to what you're thinking and what you're doing. That's what they're saying when you look at Orthodox Jews praying with the phylacteries or the tefillim. So when you talk to a Jewish context about something being on your right hand or your forehead, that's where their mind goes. Now, I don't know where Gentiles in the 21st century's minds go uh, when you hear this. It probably goes to other things. But in the first century, to Christian community made up of a whole lot of Jews, like John the Revelator, um, that's where their minds go. So when you talk about right hand or your head, it's your thoughts and your actions. So the mark of the beast is in your thoughts and your actions. Um, you know, you may have noticed the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. They like symbols in the book of Revelation. So this mark, this doesn't take a stretch. This mark is a symbolic thing. Now, you may think tattoos. Jews don't mean to offend anybody. 
Jews condemned tattoos. They don't do tattoos. They don't have to be afraid of tattoos. They're not going to allow themselves, at least if they're Orthodox today, to be tattooed. Now, sometimes when 21st century Gentiles get a hold of this mark, they think tattooing, they think branding. Again, that's 21st century Gentiles. Uh, first century Jews would think about phylacteries and tefillim. They're thinking about you know, how the Word of God allows you to do what you do and think what you think. Well, if the mark of the beast is there instead of the Word of God is there, what does that mean happening? You're allowing the beast to determine what you do and what you think. That's the mark of the beast. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the mark of the beast was something so obvious as a tattoo on my forehead? If you had that tattoo on your forehead, I'd just stay away from you. But that's not quite the way evil operates. Evil is much more seductive than that. Uh, so evil operates by taking hold of our brain, taking hold of our actions, and um, we, we, we show in the world through our the way we think, and we show the world through our actions who we belong to. Keep in mind in chapter 7, I know it seems like a long time ago, remember in chapter 7, the seal of God was on the four hands, or the forehead and the hands of the people of God. So this is just the opposite. Um, you know, what, what, what shows us to be the people of God, there will be something that will show people, the earth dwellers, that they belong to these two beasts, and ultimately to the dragon. So you know, don't be too dogmatic, but if you want to make it symbolic and spiritual, you're probably on really good ground. Now, if you want to make this a computer chip being embedded in your forearm, maybe. I don't know. You know, that, that, would, be, that would be novel to John in the first century. That would, mean, that would mean this meant absolutely nothing to John in the first century. You know, another good conviction about Scripture is you can't make Scripture just mean something to those of us in the 21st century. Scripture has always been the Word of God for all the people of God throughout all the history of God's people. Now, I know we, we, we like to imagine that God's written something here that's only about us and for us and for our age and for the West and the United States. Probably not. You know, the Word of God has to be something that's God-breathed for all of God's people throughout all the ages. You know, this had to mean something to John in the first century, and it has to mean something to us today. So, you know, um, if you want it to be a computer chip, that's fine, but don't go acting like the devil waiting on somebody to give you a computer chip. Um, you may act like the devil before you ever get the computer chip embedded in your skin. Um, I mean, that's just one of the many bizarre things out there that this may be, uh, the mark of the beast. Um, notice, though. Um, this mark will make, mean that you can't buy or sell without it. Go all the way back. Go all the way back to, remember the seven churches, those seven little churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Go back to Pergamum. The Christians in Pergamum were being persecuted because they refused. They refused to join the guilds there in Pergamum, first century unions. They refused to join the guilds because what was a core activity to those first century guilds, um, they were like a, you know, a guild of leather workers, a guild of potters, but they also got together and they usually met in temples and they worshiped the pagan gods and also talked about business. Well, the Christians couldn't do that. So they refused to participate with the guilds. Therefore, they couldn't buy and sell. As a result, they were being persecuted economically. We have a lot of history throughout the last 2,000 years that the people of God can be persecuted economically. 
Remember what, remember what, we don't remember, you're too young, but you've read what Nazi Germany did for all the Jewish merchants in Germany. They had to put the sign up telling the whole world they're Jewish. Because if you were not Jewish, if you're a good German, you need to stay away from them, not, 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 not patronize those businesses. So throughout the history of uh, Jewish and Christian people, uh, we have been persecuted economically. That's why, by the way, in the Methodist rules, Methodist general rules, which even when I came into the ministry not that long ago, we were still supposed to be reading them annually in our congregation, written by John Wesley. Now when we read them, people laugh at some of them. They're a little quaint, but there's one in there that says we need to patronize other Methodist businesses because I'm sure Methodists, like, because they were persecuted when they first came along, they were being economically persecuted by people who weren't Methodist. So um, we said, Mr. Wesley said, we need to patronize Methodists, patron, you know, maybe you can push that on out, patronize Christians, pay attention to who you're supporting. You know, when I take you to, some of you are going to Israel with me next week, um, I, will, I will be telling you while we're over there. I will, I will give you some um, officially approved shopping spots. They're officially approved by me. <laughs> because I know that the money is not going to Hamas and Hezbollah. Now, if you want to go and support Hamas and Hezbollah, go at it. But I will give you some options to shop in places that I know the money's not going to Hamas and Hezbollah. We need to be careful about how, I mean, money is, economics is, an, is, is a power, and it always has been. And we need to make sure we use ours wisely for the purposes of God. That's why um, I've always encouraged all my churches, including this one, and we do here, all of our investments are in the United Methodist Foundation. Um, not that they're any better economically than anybody else, but there are certain businesses that our money will not be invested in because they're invested with United Methodist Foundation. Now, you know, I usually get in rooms with people, and the only thing they want to know is what's the return on our investment. And I'll say it's really good, might be better somewhere else, but let me tell you what I know we're not investing in. Uh, we're not investing in breweries. We're not investing in tobacco businesses. I mean, there's a whole list of stuff that our investments will not be used for when you invest with the United Methodist Foundation. We need to pay attention because economics has been used against the people of God and for the people of God throughout our history. And, you know, and I've just noticed economics are really important to a lot of people. And it's amazing what they'll do on just for economic reasons. So, uh, you know, we have lots of history that oftentimes um, when we're being persecuted, part of that persecution is uh, uh, economic restrictions laid on us. Okay, so here comes the number. Back to 17. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, unless he's in the in-group, unless he's part of the popular culture, unless he's, however you want to say that, has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding. See, John knows. this. He knows this it stands a chance of getting making people weird. So he says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. So that probably is saying for John, it, it talks about a person. But you also could translate that just as easily. It is the number of humanity and the number 666. Um, you know, I would sleep well tonight if I just said, I have no clue who this is or what this is. 
but I'm going to take a shot. Uh, at least give you some thoughts about this. One thing I want you to point, want you to notice, beside the number 666 in your Bible, there should be a little bitty number, right, that takes you to the bottom of the page, right? You with me? And it will say, some manuscripts have what? 616. So the, we don't, we're not even sure the number 666 or 616. Um, let me tell you something. And you, again, the history has been replete with people, fig, you know, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. There you go. President Reagan. You know, I mean, I've heard throughout the history of the church, everybody's gotten 666, it seems, if they're your enemy. You can somehow work it out to make it be 666. You didn't do the math, Ronald, six letters, Wilson, six letters, Reagan, six letters, 666. But let me give you a little bit of first century cultural history. What kind of numbers do we use? Well, we call those numbers what kind of numbers? Arabic numbers, right? You with me? They didn't use Arabic numbers in the first century, did they? Arabic numbers come from, guess where? Arabia. Yeah. So you don't get Arabic numbers until much later than the beginning of the Christian movement. So they don't have Arabic numbers in the first century. So how did they count? You probably know that Roman, Roman, numerals, Roman letters have a numeric value, right? Because that, that's what we call gematria. I wrote it up here. Gematria is the use, and you can do the same with Hebrew, where letters have a numeric value. And that's why, you know, LV, L1V, wasn't that the Super Bowl this? LIV, yeah. LIV, L1V. I was using, throwing the Arabic numeral in there. LIV, that's what the Super Bowl was. It was Super Bowl what? 14, good. So, um, yeah, you, 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 I've told you over and over, I think, math's of the devil, and I don't do well with this. Don't hold me accountable for any mathematics. But anyway, in the ancient world, that's the way you had to count. You had to use your, your letters. So, that's why John could say 666 is the, is the, is, is, uh, the number of a man. We, we've got lots of history. Um, in Pompeii, if you've ever been to Pompeii, the, the ruins of Pompeii are amazing. You know, uh, Vesuvius just covered it, and it just held the city of Pompeii in history, just like it was when uh, the volcano erupted and, and swamped the city. So if you ever go to Pompeii, and I've been there a couple, three times, it's an amazing place to go. You, you're walking around, and you feel like you're in the first century. Pompeii happened about 20 years before John wrote this. Uh, there's a, there's, they found graffiti that said, I love the woman whose number is 545. You know, so you can find graffiti like that in the ancient world. Um, I'll tell you, when I finish in a second, a number that's given to Jesus uh, in one ancient um, Christian document. Um, but let me just throw this out. If, this is probably the most standard answer uh, among sort of serious New Testament scholars. And it doesn't solve the problem. It's just because it's a little bit bizarre itself, but it works. Um, if you used Hebrew, Hebrew names, which John would have been Aramaic Hebrew speaker, Aramaic's the street version of the Hebrew. If you use Hebrew names for um, that evil, evil, evil Caesar, 
and I'm going to spell it using our letters. Um, there's two ways. You use the Hebrew and then write it in Greek letters, which is the book of Revelation is written in Greek letters. But let's say you're using the Hebrew names. Um, if you if you were to say the name Nero in Hebrew and then write it in Greek letters, you would either say Kaiser, you know, Kaiser, Caesar, Kaiser, or Kaiser, Kaiser Nero, or in Hebrew you can say Kaiser Neron. You just add the extra. Um, um, in, 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 the, in the Greek, it's the new. You just add the extra N on the end of it. You with me? I know I, I don't like math, but it's a little bit like mathematics. If you, if, you, if you do the Hebrew name, but do it in Greek letters, which is what the book of Revelation is in, Kaiser Nero, well, let's do this one first. Kaiser Neron, with this extra new at the end, guess what it equals? 666. If you take the new off the end, guess what it equals? 616. You know, near, uh, John would have probably been thinking about Nero when he said that. But again, Nero wasn't even the best Antichrist figure we've had in history. He's been beat since the first century. Um, Hitler makes Nero look mild. You know, Stalin makes Nero look mild. Somebody mentioned Paul Pot last week. Probably makes Nero look mild. So um, probably for John, it meant Nero, which is why your manuscripts differ between 616 and 666. Because Nero, if you use the Hebrew name, which is a little weird that he may be doing that, but he would have been Hebrew, writing in Greek like everybody else that wrote the New Testament. If you use the Hebrew names but put them with um, Greek letters for this Greek manuscript, uh, depending upon the manuscript, if you do the final N, final new, it could be 666 or 616. Um, which, again, probably the first century people who read this, they probably knew exactly who John was talking about. You know, if, 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 if John would have been meaning Ronald Wilson Reagan, they'd been the first century would have known anything about that one, but they would have known about Nero. So that's probably your best guess as to what numbers. But the one I like better, and that may be true, because it does say this is the number of a man, but that can be translated, this is the number of humanity. What is perfection? What's the number of perfection? Seven. So seven, seven, seven is great perfection, right? What would be, just imagine you didn't know any of this stuff, but you knew this number stuff from the first century. What would be a satanic counterfeit, trying to be the perfection of God, but it certainly is not. You know, no matter how hard the dragon and the beast from the land and the beast from the sea try to be an unholy trinity, they'll never be 777. So what's the best they can be? 666. Which also would tell you why in the sibling oracles of the second century, guess what number is given to Jesus? 888. So, you know, I think you're always on much safer ground to interpret the book of Revelation spiritually, symbolically. Uh, if you interpret it spiritually, then it can be used by all of God's people throughout of all of God's history. 
Um, if you just have to say, oh, it's got to be Ronald Wilson Reagan or it's got to be whoever, however you make the 666s work out, then, you know, it just will have meaning for just a few people. Obviously, I don't think it was Ronald Wilson Reagan. We got beyond that one now. Nobody's saying he was 666. But uh, but I think if you just interpret it spiritually, it is the it can, at that point it is the number of humanity. It is humanity trying to be seven seven seven, and it will never happen. Now I know some humans who think they're seven seven seven, but no matter how hard they try, they're going to be looking foolish in the end because six 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 is the best they're going to be. Um. So that's probably enough to think about. Go in peace. Talk to some people in the room before you get out of here.